Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. Today we're back in the studio. We're on the phone with a new friend of ours, Dixie Redfern from Seal Beach, California. How are you, Dixie? I'm great. How are you doing? Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we started recording, Dixie and I were playing Connected Dots with Where She Lives, which I've driven through um, once on my visit to the OC and it is absolutely beautiful in Seal Beach. That's true. Yeah, I'm blessed to be able to live here. I live right by the ocean and it's a, a great place to recuperate. So Dixie, we're recording this at the end of January. This will probably air in a couple weeks. I'm here in Connecticut just to give our listeners who maybe have never been to Seal Beach, California, just an idea of temperament and temperature. Today in Connecticut, we're lucky if we hit 35. It's the it's the middle of winter. It's miserable. It's cold. I think we're going to get some rain or sleet. We might actually warm up next week, but we just had a, a storm come through the weekend, which dropped... I think in the northern hills, a couple of inches of snow. We got kind of this sleet mix to rain. What's the weather like today in Seal Beach, and how's it been so far this week? Well, it sounds like a cliche, but seventy-two and sunny. Ah, <laughs> oh, not to not <laughs> and, to make anyone listening jealous about that, but there's a reason everybody wants to live in Southern California. Um, it, Seal Beach is a, a tiny little beach town. It's been called Mayberry by the Sea. It's managed to keep um, high rises out. It's kept out any uh, chain stores. It's got a quaint little main street. Um, you know, the mailman knows your name. You go to the grocery store and you're going to run into it. You'll spend half your time talking to people you know. It's that kind of place. Sounds wonderful right now. I love Connecticut, but right now that sounds wonderful to me. I'll take it. Well, Dixie, for um, our guests that we always do, uh, for all our guests on our podcast uh, to start the show, this is your opportunity to share with our audience. And we have a pretty vast audience. We have, you know, survivors that are listening, quite possibly runners, Olympians, uh, people who have been impacted by the disease and people who haven't been impacted by the disease. But this is your opportunity to give our audience your background. And I always preface it by saying you can go as far back as you want or as high level as you want, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Background before disease. Is that what you you're can, asking? Yeah, you can do that. Or if you want to get in right into the disease, the, the choice is yours, Dixie. There's no right or wrong either. Okay. Um, well, I'm a retired journalist. I'm, I'll be 72 in June. Um, we, my husband and I have four children and 10 grandchildren. Um, five of the 10 are millennials, so we're getting a big peek into that aspect of society, and we've been really <laughs> blessed to watch so many grandchildren grow up. Um, I didn't know anything about pancreatic cancer. I'd heard of it, of course. I've had cancer twice. I was diagnosed twice in the same year when I was 46. That was 1994. Um, I was diagnosed with a melanoma, which was surgically removed, and they got clear margins. And then six months later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I had a lumpectomy and chemotherapy and radiation and lost all my hair. And But I've been fine since then. 
Um, so it's not like I didn't know anything about cancer. Uh, when I first, I did have some symptoms that I wish I would have known. Not it, it wouldn't have made any difference, I don't think. But um, I wish I could have put that all together. Is the 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 I had some dark urine. I had mm -hmm. some chalky looking bowel movement. Um, I made an appointment with my um, general practitioner after it continued for about a week because I thought that's really sort of odd. Um, and then I was outside um, in Sunset Beach, which is right next door to us, and ran into one of our daughters who's a nurse practitioner. We were outside in the sun, and she took one look at me and said, you need to go to the emergency room. And I'm like, what? And she said, you have jaundice. You're yellow. Well, no one had told me that. I'd run into all kinds of people. Um, I, what I didn't realize was that jaundice is hard to detect um, in interior lighting. Yeah. It's mainly only discovered when someone's out in the, you know, real lighting. So, I mean, I didn't rush to the emergency room, but my husband and I the next morning got up and went to um, Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, which is our what our insurance is through. And um, I had gone on WebMD that I call my primary care physician. <laughs> probably like everyone does when they have symptoms. And so I'd self-diagnosed myself with gallbladder problem. So I went in through the emergency room on a Saturday morning and uh, came out three weeks later with a huge hole in my stomach. When they say opened wound, they're not kidding. And a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which I had learned in the hospital, was a pretty grim diagnosis with less than a 20% um, chance of living too long. Um, my cancer was diagnosed relatively easy. It was staged at 2 um, I was eligible for the Whipple surgery because I had a small tumor at the head of my pancreas. And Newport Beach is a pretty affluent area, and um, Hogue Hospital has, I think, some of the best doctors ever. And um, I had a wonderful surgeon who came in and told, explained the operation to me. He even drew it on a piece of paper which I still have. It's funny. And, um, you know, told me it was a pretty heavy duty operation. It could take anywhere from seven to 10 hours and that, um, the recovery would be long and somewhat difficult. Um, and it was stage two because when they did the Whipple, they took out 26 lymph nodes and found one active lymph node. Hmm. So um, when I recovered from the Whipple and was finally able to leave the hospital, which this is a hospital where you're in a suite with an ocean view and your room looks like a studio apartment with a couch and, you know, and the, some of the best food, I mean, like five-star restaurant quality food, really, it's amazing. Um and so then, then I got home and um, 
proceeded to get sick, so I didn't couldn't start chemo for a couple months, but I got bronchitis. But then um, my oncologist, who had visited me in the hospital several times, um, he started me on Gemzar, which in um, 2017, which was when this started in September of 2017, um, that was pretty much the standard. Mm-hmm. So I was on Gemzar for about a year, um, doing fine. You know, chemo's not a picnic, but it, it wasn't horrid. But they came, um, my tumor markers were going up. I was having my blood taken every week. And, and in June of 2018, I believe, a new regimen was approved for uh, this cancer called Flofirinox. Mm-hmm. And I talked to my doctor about it um, at length. And, um, you know, he said it had had some pretty promising results, but it was new that the tests had originally come out of France. And then he started talking about wearing this fanny pack home and taking the chemo home after I was infused at the, at the oncologist's office. And, you know, it just really sounded like a drag. But um, after about a year on Gemzar, my tumor markers went up to 1900. And at that point, I thought, you know what, this doesn't sound good. They couldn't find a tumor. I had a PET scan, several CAT scans, an MRI, no evidence of a tumor, but still those numbers rising were scary. So I moved over to Flofirinox. Um, and that's a combination of three generic cancer drugs that are put together as one chemotherapy regimen. And you, I had it every other week, and you get. I was infused for six hours, and then I would come home wearing a fanny pack. I bought a cute pink one, so I didn't like the one the doctor had. And I had um, more chemo in there, what I called chemo to go. And that was 46 hours after I came home. I wore this fanny pack 24-7. And then about a day and a half later, I'd go back to the doctor and they'd unhook that from my port. And then, you know, I'd wait for the next chemo session. So um, that's kind of what I've been doing The the tumor markers started dropping with the Flofirinox and got as low as 200. In the meantime, I had developed two small, maybe nickel-sized basal cell cancers, one on each leg. Hmm. And I went to the dermatologist and, and, you know, he said, yeah, these are basal cell and it's going to have to be a plastic surgeon because they look like they might be a little deep. And I said, you know what, first of all, <laughs> that seems so minor. And, you know, I'm dealing with the elephant in the room, which is this pancreatic cancer. So I think I'm just going to ignore these basal cells. And I said, you know, I don't know if I'll be alive a year from now. So I just kind of don't want to deal with it. And he said, okay. Well, a year later, when I went back, they were like bleeding and mm-hmm. I had to have band-aids over both of them. And he said, well, you're, I see you're still here, but so are the basal cells. So um, 
I had surgery this January 15th. I had to go off chemo for three weeks prior, and I have to be off of it for three weeks after, which will be about another week now. And I had a regular hospital general anesthesia surgery, and between the two legs, I have 44 staples. Oh, my God. I mean, it. you know, I guess that... What I was told is that flofir, one of the three drugs in flofirinox, if you have um, kind of dormant basal cells, will bring them out. Mm. Um, and so it, that's evidently what happened, but it must all may also make them grow faster or more because this was a big deal of a surgery. And I've got scars that go from my ankle to my knee. Not that I care. But um, and I don't have the staples out yet, so I'm not on chemo at this minute. But as soon as I get cleared by the surgeon, I'll go back to my oncologist and go back on flofirinox. So you're on the chemo break. Uh, this yes. is so crazy. I, I, I appreciate all the information, but I, I want to take a step back. You mentioned you had cancer at 46 and 96. And melanoma and then breast cancer. Did you have... 1994. I was 46 years old. Okay. 1994. Yeah. So did you have genetic testing done back then? No, I didn't. That, you know, that was quite a long time ago. Yeah. So... And they didn't really talk about that then. I since learned... It was interesting because I was in a support group with about 15 or 20 women for the breast cancer, Mm -hmm. and every single person there had either had a melanoma or had a first-generation relative with a melanoma. Yeah. And my mother had had both. And so I knew then that there was a connection, but it was several years before the medical community put it together. And there actually, I've since had genetic testing because there's a syndrome of melanoma, breast cancer, and pancreatic cancer that's a gene mutation, but I didn't have that gene mutation. So your genetic... so you did I don't do... have BRCA1 or 2 either. Wow. So you went through the genetic testing and you haven't had... Yeah. So it's fascinating. We've, ha- we've done a couple podcasts on genetics and we've had a lot of uh, experts on the podcast about this topic because the term personalized medicine, I think, started this whole discussion years ago when you know people were talking about... And, and they're, they're still attempting to do this. With some cancers, they're really good at it where you know the, 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 the disease is are from the genes. You know, everyone has this genetic markup and that comes from your parents and your parents pass on genes, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And certain diseases, as you mentioned with BRCA, the BRCA one and two, there's, there's common diseases that are found with those genes. Lynch syndrome's another one, which I think you might've been indicating as well. Uh, ATM, which is a, like a cousin of Lynch syndrome, but there's still so many to be learned about. And we had one, right. of the, one of the experts from Harvard actually on the podcast uh, a couple months back, and he brought the example of Jimmy Carter. So Jimmy Carter's family has had, I think it was like six or seven blood, you know, inline blood relatives with pancreatic cancer. 
but there is no mutation to be found in terms of the ones that we know that they've identified. And there's about seven that they've identified that they know are at high, put people at high risk if you have this genetic mutation, BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, Lynch syndrome, and there's three others, Palpy1 and 2, and then there's one more that I'm forgetting here. But we do know, science knows, that if you have these seven genes, you're at a higher risk. And now what we do know with pancreatic cancer in particular is that there is actually a, a therapy protocol for those folks who have these specific gene mutations that does really well, different than right. for Floridox and the Gemzar and the Abraxine. There's a, there's a combination of drugs that, that actually does really, really well. And we've had actually a podcast guest on the, the podcast last year who was BRCA. And when they realized he was BRCA, they changed the total protocol and he like, was like back to normal, like, and he still has no evidence of disease, and like, it just worked wonders for him. So yeah, I was hoping I had a genetic mutation, but I didn't. So that's fat, <laughs> but that's fascinating, Dixie, because I, I, I guarantee if we reach out to some of our geneticist friends, they would love to study your gene panel because there's there's stuff that's happening every day with genetics that we're starting to learn more and more, and there's this thing called the variances. And I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but sometimes people will test and they won't have anything that is of those seven genes, but they'll have this variance. What does that mean? Well, it can't be explained. So it's not, you know, and so those are the folks that I think, and especially if there's a strong family history of cancers in general, in particular, melanoma and breast cancer, which are pretty common. Um, mm -hmm. And then you throw pancreatic cancer in the mix. You know, they're, they're, I'm sure there's probably some geneticists that would love to see your gene uh, panel to, to take a deeper dive into it, potentially to maybe identify something which would be fascinating. But that is super fascinating that you tested negative for all the known gene mutations that are common with those three because BRCA is melanoma, breast cancer, prostate, ovarian, pancreatic. And, right. and you've got three out of, you know, the, the <laughs> six, you know, you're batting uh, yeah. 500, which is not a, not a good thing, but that's so fascinating though. I think I might've been a serial killer in my previous life. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so you go through the, the, the first cancers in 94 and then in 17, you, you go through this pancreatic cancer, but I want to, I want to pause there for a second because we talked about symptoms. You had the dark urine, um, which is a symptom, but I, we on a previous podcast that we just recorded recently, this came up and the gentleman said, you know what though, how many people actually look at their urine when they go to the bathroom? And, and I think that's something that I was like, wow, yeah, that's right. Like you don't really, I'm sure people don't stare in the toilet bowl and look at, you know, what, what's coming out. They just flush the toilet, right? And you go bond, go bond your, go, go along with your business. And we had another gentleman on the podcast who talked about this and uh, recently, and he said that, you know, think about this. And if a, if a toilet bowl, because, you know, the way our bodies work, everything gets flushed out and our urine and our bowel movements tell so much about how the body is functioning. If the toilet bowl could actually diagnose disease before it becomes present, right before you become jaundice, 
um, would be mm-hmm. very fascinating. So when you talk about, to go back to your story, you know, the dark urine and, and the bowel was chalky, was that over a period of weeks or was it something that, hey, just one day you kind of noticed? And again, no. No, one, no one really looks at looks at their bowel movements. I don't think anyone, you know, maybe that's something that we should all be aware of. Like you really need to look at. Well, I mean, I knew that was important and I knew that that's a sign of general health. Yeah. Um, I now what were you asked exactly? I, you know, I were think the symptoms Im- just like, did they just happen? Like, and you said it was like September, 2017. Was it just one day you realized that? Or do you think like, and naturally hindsight's always 2020, was this happening for a while? And then, no, I knew exactly when it was happening. I'm one of those weird people who look. I know I'm it's not weird. In- <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty nothing- in tune with my body. Yeah. I knew exactly when it was happening. I've spent a lot of time in Mexico. I've had many parasites from yep. Mexico, and it kind of we'd eaten at kind of a seedy Mexican restaurant, and I'd had shrimp. And my first thought was, oh, I've got some kind of weird, this seems like I have a parasite. No pain, but I just made a doctor's appointment because it didn't go away. Yeah. You know, it'd been five or six days. And so then I made the appointment and the appointment was in like another week. And it was in between that time when Angie said, oh, you have jaundice. But no pain. You never had any pain. No. Now, remember, it wasn't stage four. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, so there, we've had patients on the the podcast that have been early stages that have had just pain and nothing else, which is really? fascinating. Yeah, so that and that's what's important, I think, for listeners at home. I mean, I think that's the one thing and something that you just mentioned is just being aware of your body. Um, you know, is important, and I think that's something that everyone needs to really heed and and really take to heart because. Everyone knows their body best. And when something's off, you kind of have an idea that something's off. But yeah, we've had. You know, it's interesting that you'd use that word because about before I noticed the symptoms, I remember telling my husband I felt a little off. And I used that exact phrase. I didn't feel sick necessarily. I didn't have any pain, but I felt off like something wasn't quite right. Yeah, I, I truly believe that. And I think that's something that um, we have heard often on the podcast. Symptoms, everyone is different. You know, we've had, like I said, we've had people, we had a guy um, on our podcast, a good friend, a guy I've become good friends with here locally, Kevin King. Um, if you go back and he was one of our first podcast guests early, early on a couple years ago, he had a flutter in his stomach. And that was, yeah, and and he just knew, but he knew, because he knew his body, that something Uh wasn't right. But he didn't have any Uh other symptoms. He just had this flutter, and he went to his general practitioner, and, you know, he really self-advocated for himself with his doctors to, you know, get further testing and to kind of figure this out, because he just knew something wasn't right with his body. So it's fascinating to me to hear you tell your story, you know, that you didn't really have any pain. It was just really, you know, the urine and the bowel. And then, you know, the jaundice clearly is is like the, the number one sign. So you go to the hospital and right away they peg you for pancreatic cancer and then you're able to have surgery and have the Whipple. Well, not right away. I mean, it took them a, about a day to figure it out. Oh, yeah. But in, in terms yeah. of... Time frame. I know some people 
get misdiagnosed for six months. You mentioned your gallbladder and some other things I think you mentioned. Um, but some people, you know, it, it can take months before they actually get a full diagnosis. But from you said from when you went in to when you came out was about three weeks. That's pretty right. good. That's really good. Is it? <laughs> oh, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, again, we've had people, I've had people on the podcast, Dixie, that, you know, unfortunately have been misdiagnosed. I know from my experience with my dad, oh, geez, I think it was about six months until we got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. I mean, we went wow. through, my dad had his gallbladder removed. Uh, they told him he had gout. I think at one point oh they, they said he uh, was diabetic and that was the issue for his pain. And, you know, it was just uh, a lack of really good doctors, I think, to say, hmm. And, and the the straw that kind of, I guess, broke the camel's back was, you know, the jaundice, which I think is something, you know, is one of the symptoms that is pretty much, you know, hey, you have jaundice, you've got something going on with your pancreas, it could be pancreatic cancer. We're or the, liver. I think liver presents jaundice too. Correct. So, but the, all these <laughs> other symptoms though, think about it, like dark urine. I, I mean, you know, you could, you know, something going on with your bowel. If you have GI issues, that could be dietary. Um, it could be what you drank. I mean, I eat a lot of beets and a lot of times, you know, just from flushing through my system, my <laughs> urine is very dark just because of the beats. Um, one time I, I worked out really hard. I was training for a marathon not too long ago. And after my long run, my urine was very, very dark. And I, I freaked out a little bit and I called one of my doctor friends and he said, no, that's pretty normal. As long as it doesn't persist and, you know, happen over a couple of days, you should be fine. Just drink a lot of water. So, um, you know, the other, you know, back pain, you know, someone could be working out or, you know, slept wrong or need a new mattress and can just think that's the reason for it, right? So jaundice is really the one that I think really strikes everyone and kind of brings up all the flags and, you know, makes people aware of it. But usually by that time, sometimes that could mean that it's just too late, you know, in staging and diagnosis. So to have a stage two diagnosis and present yourself that way, from my experience, from people that I've talked to on the podcast and just in general, that's really, really good. So you... Well, I mean, this, you know, I think we have state-of-the-art medical here. You know, anytime you have an affluent beach community, um, you know, the, I mean, all the movie stars, a lot of them end up at Hogue Hospital. There's a whole floor that they call the John Wayne floor that you yep. need a special key to the elevator to <laughs> get on. Um, Membership has but, its privileges, let's say, Dixie. Yeah, had had I lived in a rural area or an area without this kind of health care, it might have been a different story. Well, I, I think that's, you know, and we've talked about this often on the podcast. With this disease, it is so complex. And, and before we started recording, we talked a little bit about, you know, the issues and the challenges with it, right? And I think going back 10 years ago, there are probably four or five major centers in the country that were equipped really to handle this disease like no other. But a lot of that's changed. And now there's centers throughout the country, you know, that are major medical cancer centers that right. have the resources. And, you know, 
we haven't talked about this, but where you live is probably not a, an inexpensive place to live. I'm sure the, the cost of real estate's extremely expensive. Uh, I know Orange County is, you know, typically, you know, in the top ranks in terms of, you know, uh, cost of living, but then also, uh, you know, in terms of what people make. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of celebrities in the area. It's a beautiful part of the country. But there's also great access to healthcare, right? So I, yeah. I think that's something that is fortunate. And I, I say we have that same problem here. Connecticut's very expensive to live. Um, the cost of living is really expensive. Taxes are high. Real estate is high. But we have great healthcare. We have great healthcare in the state. We're sandwiched in between New York and Boston, which is really kind of the mecca in the world in terms of the science, in terms of medicine. We've got, you know, yeah. we've got access to great care, whereas maybe some people in the rural settings don't necessarily have. But that's an important lesson because going and getting, and if you had to get a second opinion to a major medical center is crucial and critical. And because you had access to that major medical center, Granted, it was in your backyard because of where you live. It's the world of difference. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. So you go through the chemo. You've got kind of this chemo break right now. But in, in all told, your experience with chemotherapy, has it been good? Has it been any, any challenges to it? <clears throat> well... Um, yeah, the, the Flofirinox is rough. It, it is hard, rough, gnarly chemo. And I'm pretty tough, <laughs> pretty tough old bat, but. Um, well, you got 10 grandkids, so you got to have some sort of toughness <laughs> with that many kids. It's really, um, you know, I've actually thrown up while I was being infused. Oh, wow. So, and, and in fact, I think they ended up putting me on an 80% dose because it was just too much. Yeah. But that dose brought my numbers down. So, you know, and I just think those rise in numbers is probably cancer cells kind of doing push ups, wait, you know, planning a tumor. So that's why I worry because. I don't want there to be another tumor. Now you've had scans, your scans that you've had post-surgery have been clean up until this point. Oh yeah. I've had every scan you can have. I've had ultrasound endoscopy. I've had, I mean, everything, nuclear PET scan, MRI. I mean, they can't find anything. And you still feel good too. I mean, it's not like I mean, we were just talking about how you know your body best. Um, I w I don't feel terrible, but um, my lifestyle certainly has been altered, for sure. I mean, you know, I was one of those ten thousand steps a day people. Yeah. Before this all started, and you know, there's. There are days that I don't leave the house. Um, but then there are days that I go and do exactly what I want to do. I've kind of gotten into a rhythm of I know that I have, you know, so I've been on chemo probably a year and a half. Wow. And that doesn't all go away when you get this little vacation. No. You know, it's, it's a cumulative thing. Correct. 
so, um, you know, I, all in all, I, I think I've done pretty well, but I've realized that, um, I have a finite amount of energy and most of it's in the morning. And so if I want to get things done or go somewhere, I know that I'm good for about, you know, maybe four or five hours or three outings. And then I need to come home and sometimes I nap. I wasn't a napper before, but I definitely have diminished um, energy. Pro probably when, when I got home from the uh, having the Whipple, and I was trying to explain to people how I felt. I told him it was like if your iPhone battery was on 2% and it shows up red in the corner, yeah. <laughs> that's about how I felt. Um, now, overall, I'd say I'm maybe at 60%. I mean, I don't look sick. And, you know, people that don't know me don't know I'm sick. Um but I certainly don't have the energy I had before. Well, the Whipple is such a, I mean, for our audience listening at home, and we've talked about this, the Whipple is such a, a large invasive surgery. I mean, depending on the patient, it can go anywhere from eight hours to 10 hours. The recovery time, you know, is typically three to six weeks, maybe longer, depending on how you heal. Um, you know, the, the surgery, you know, if it's done traditionally and not laparoscopically, there's a big incision. There's a lot of healing. There's a lot of parts that are moved around. Um, parts that are thrown out. Correct. Parts that yeah. are that then marginalized, you know, and, and you mentioned you had 26 lymph nodes. That's a lot uh, to come out of there. So yeah, it's a, it's a big, big surgery. I mean, some people don't he completely heal for a year sometimes just because of, you know, the the surgery and how serious that surgery is. That wasn't my experience, but I think another lucky break was my surgeon, whose name is Al Bui, who's Vietnamese, fairly young, um, probably late 30s, early 40s. He said that he does his own version of the Whipple. Huh. That he it's it's a hundred year old operation, but he found that there a different way to do it that seems to have better results. And you know, I have to say, I've had, you know, like he said, you may not be able to drink coffee, carbonated beverages, have anything with beef in it. You're you know all these stomach issues. You might have you know, I haven't had anything, nothing. I mean, I can drink a Diet Coke. I can eat a steak. Um, no issues. I've always always been a pretty healthy eater. But whatever he did, because I've spoken and, and connected with people who've had the Whipple on the Internet, I, I think I've had one of the better experiences. I've had no trouble with it, I guess is what I would say. Wow. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. So have you done anything, you know, in terms of your treatment, in terms of uh, recovery, was there anything that really helped that you did differently maybe than that was something that was recommended that we could share with our audience? Well, I, I talked to my doctor about smoking pot, which is legal in California. In other um, states. 
And he he said, you know, he had prescribed me seven anti-nausea drugs. Uh-huh. And he said, if that helps you, I'm all for it. You know, that's and it's more natural than all these drugs. Yeah. And generally, you know, there there were times um, on the Flofirinox where I did have to take some of the anti-nausea drugs. But for the most part, pot not only relieved the nausea, but it gave me a little appetite at a time when probably most people aren't eating. Um, so my weight today is exactly the same as it was two and a half years ago. Wow. With all the challenges and issues that you've had on this journey. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm at a a trim weight for my, you know, I'm 5'8", I weigh 140. You know, I think I've always been pretty healthy, even Uh in spite of these cancer diagnoses. Wow. So, was the pot something that you used in conjunction with the nausea meds or was it just something like you realized like, Hey, the nausea meds are not doing it. I'm going to smoke the pot to kind of, and then it worked with the nausea and then uh, activating the appetite. So it was just something that just became routine or just when you kind of felt that you needed that supplement. No, it, it became routine. I mean, I, you know, I I smoke a small amount of pot every day. Wow. And the other thing I do is, um, and, you know, when you have a disease like this, you know, people come out of the woodwork to tell you, you know, apricots will do this. Yeah. And why don't you, you go to Mexico? You know, I said, if they, if they cured cancer in Mexico, the New York <laughs> Times would be down there writing about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you know, true. Give me a break. I but I did start drinking alkaline water. I looked yeah. into that a little bit, and it seemed like a pretty benign thing to do. Um, that's not too much of a hassle. It, you can buy it at the supermarket, but Whole Foods has a machine. You can bring in your own container, and, yep. and it's like a dollar fifty a gallon. So that's the pot and alkaline water are the two things that I've done that weren't strictly from i mean i meditate and i vision i you know i do a lot of new agey stuff but just in terms of something that that isn't a normal medical thing those would be the two and would you say so i want to stay here for a second you mentioned meditate and you said you were super active before you know getting ten thousand steps clearly now life has changed a little bit still very active, just picking your times when you can be active. Was the meditation and being active always part of your lifestyle? Yes, pretty much. Anything else that like yoga or fitness or? Well, I've always done yoga. um, But because I have a port. Yeah, it's hard. It's some of the, you know, it's just a little dicey. I did go back to the gym um, before I had to have this leg surgery. Mm -hmm. um, And I could do like the, you know, the elliptical and the treadmill and stuff like that. It's, it's, uh, I just thought I needed kind of an extra physical boost. And I'll go back there when I'm released uh, by the surgeon. 
even though, you know, I have to be careful because of the port, but there's still a lot I can do there. And so I'll keep that up. And I walk on the beach, you know, I've always done that. And the reason I asked the question, Dixie, is because I, I can tell you from what we have seen, people that have lived an active lifestyle, and I'm not saying that you have to go to the gym or you have to run, but people who have had an active lifestyle prior to being diagnosed and then continue mm -hmm. to live that active lifestyle. Now, again, it doesn't have to be the same output, mm -hmm. but still getting up, stretching, yoga, whatever it is, but still continuing to go through that lifestyle motion has been phenomenal. And everyone has raved about, you know, the, the benefits of, and there is actually studies out there, you know, in terms of just cancer as a whole, cancer patients being active versus sedentary and how that is beneficial for them in terms of their treatment. And again, we're not, I'm not advocating that if you're on treatment, whether it's pancreatic cancer or other cancers that you go out and run marathons or 5Ks for that <laughs> matter, but just being active and not being sedentary. And I think what you said before, you know, things change, but you know now because you know your body best. Hey, like in the morning I can do these things, but you know, come the afternoon I probably have to take a nap or it's just not feasible. It's just not going to work out because my body is just not able to do that now. Is really critical and, and powerful for people to hear. And I don't believe in, you know, I mean I've pushed through a lot of things in my life, but I'm not going to go out and say, you know, I'm going to do these eight things today, no matter what, you know, yeah. I, I, I can feel when I'm, when I'm kind of tired or what, you know, kind of feel my energy leaking out of my body. Yeah. <laughs> Watching my mojo go away. You know, I know it's time to like get quiet. You know, I, I read a lot of books. Um, so I, you know, I just, my body just kind of lets me know how much I can do. Well, and I think though, though, that's something that's important though. Like in the beginning, like you knew something was off, but then also now being cognizant that this is what you can do and listening to your body and, and listening to that internal self is so critical. Cause I think a lot of times people don't, we don't listen to ourselves and we don't realize our boundaries. And I'm also doing something called bio-spiritual focusing. And that was invented by the Jesuits about 100 years ago. And you do it with a companion who's trained in focusing. Um, and that's been an interesting, it's, it's basically all in the body. And so she kind of guides me through, um, you know, how my body's feeling. Is there anxiety? Is it heavy? Is it? And that's helped me a lot. There's been times when I do that about once a week. And there's been times when something has kind of been gnawing at me. And by the time I leave, I've sort of made peace with it in my body, if that makes any sense. I, I know that sounds pretty new agey, but, you know, the Jesuits are... <laughs> Not a dumb lot, and I, no. I think that there's a lot to be said for that. How did you find that? Um, a woman, we go to St. Anne's Catholic Church, and one of the women in the church approached me after she heard my diagnosis and asked if I would be interested in trying that with her. She's been doing it for about 30, 35 years. Has faith been a big part of your life always? 
Um, I was raised by uh, wolves, and one of them was Catholic, and one was Southern Baptist. So I, I grew up pretty screwed up in that um, <laughs> category. <laughs> But I always came back to the Catholic Church for some reason that I felt at home there. And um, about six or seven years ago now, I had been baptized in the Baptist Church, um, but that was it. And so I went to our church, which I'd been attending, um, but not really being active. And, you know, I thought the Catholics are pretty desperate. This will be easy. <laughs> so, I, I'm laughing because I grew up in Roman Catholic faith, so I get this. <laughs> so I thought, you know, they need all the, the help they can get, right? True. So, you know, I went in there and said, hey, I, I want to um, be confirmed, you know, and, and what do I need to do? Do I need to talk to her? And she's like, oh, you have to. <laughs> so I met with a priest and, and talked to him about it. And they have adult confirmation classes. Mm -hmm. And a, I went through that, um, which was very informative, actually, because how much do you actually retain of that when you're 11 or 12? Correct, you know? yeah. In fact, there were some people in the class who were confirmed Catholics who kind of wanted a refresher on some things. So um, I went ahead and took that and uh, got confirmed in the church wow. so I could go to confession. And um, then about maybe two years later, I never really said anything to my husband. He was raised Catholic, but, you know, was one of those recovering Catholics. They're a lot nicer now, by the way. So. <laughs> Um, he ended up taking the classes, and he had never been baptized. So in his mid-70s, he was baptized and confirmed in the church. Wow. So would you say that through this whole ordeal, or not ordeal, but this journey and this odyssey that you've been on, that faith has played a part in that in, in a positive way? Um, yes, I think, because I'm not, I mean, no one wants to die, but I'm, I, I'm not really afraid. You know, I, I really do feel like God is with me and I, you know, I feel like my faith is solid. You know, I've, I've lived a pretty long life. I've seen a lot and done a lot and, you know, the, Watching grandchildren grow up is just a blessing beyond belief. So, you know, I think having that anchor kind of in my um, toolbox has, you know, has definitely been positive. I mean, I think that I've, I'm actually pretty positive about the whole thing. I mean, I'm kind of, it's like a big adventure um, to see what, you know, what's going to happen. That's a pretty powerful statement. Well, death is probably one of the, you know, um, biggest things that happens to any of us. And I want to be conscious and, um, you know, I want to have a, an aware death. You know, it's I'm not, not something I'm afraid of or that I want to hide or, you know, I'm I'm um, just, you know, and I've read a lot of books. I, I read On Mortality by 
He's got kind of an unpronounceable last name, I think, Indian guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've read a lot of books on that subject, it, it, and it's, you know, it's a really fascinating subject. And I don't know. I mean, look at Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Was that a shocker? You know, 41, I think everyone just stopped in their tracks at, at that news because you never know. You know, we don't know when we're going to go. No one does. But yeah. death is something that no one loves. You know, no one goes to a cocktail party or goes to the gym and says, hey, so I've been thinking about how I uh, hope I die and how my obituary <laughs> should read. Right. But I, well, I, I, I'll probably I'll write my own obituary. I'm sure I've thought about that already. So I, I got a question for you and, and I'd love to hear more about this topic because I think it's fascinating. Was this something that this mindset about this big adventure and how this adventure ends, has this always kind of been in the back of your mind and being a journalist, probably something that maybe has crossed your desk at some point if you're a journalist in various topics or whatever, you know, I mean, you see these things, you know, whether it was Kobe Bryant or Patrick Swayze, you know, to to bring in to, to light, you know, a celebrity who died of pancreatic cancer or you know, other actors or actresses that passed away from various reasons, right? John F. Kennedy Jr., remember tragically how he passed yeah. away. So, you know, as a, as a journalist, I'm sure you you probably have seen, uh, you know, death in, in, in that industry as well. But was it something that this mindset of, you know, thinking about the end, something that you thought about often, or did it change once you were diagnosed? Um, I think it's always been a little bit in the back of my mind um, because that's life. And the older we get, the more people we lose and the more we come to understand that, you know, that's that's uh, the eventually where we're all going to end up. And who wouldn't want to know more about it? You know, I mean. I had some crazy dreams in the hospital and probably hallucinations, but, um, you know, I, it's not a scary taboo thing to me. I mean, I've talked to my friends about what songs I think would be cool to play at a service. I mean, I, you know, I, although this is probably what I'll die of. I mean, I, I unless something strange happens but um at my age i'm sure this will end up being what the cause is so that makes it a little more top of mind do i feel like i'm gonna die tomorrow no yeah (laughs) i feel pretty robust and healthy really well there's a there's a reality of it though right and i think one of the things dixie is no one wants to talk about reality sometimes because uh the harshness or the the stark reality of it. Right. And not with this disease, but you bring up Colby Bryant. And as we record, you know, Colby passed away over the weekend and, you know, this will air in a couple of weeks, but nothing is guaranteed. You know, living forever is not guaranteed. We all pass at some point. And tragically, sometimes it happens, you know, to some of the world's greatest folks in whatever field they're in, as we've seen here and over the last week and how tragic that can be. But it's also, I think, something important to talk about 
to be able to have discussions about because it's a reality for all of us, right? I, I mean, and I, I, it's 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 almost troubling to me a little bit that people don't talk about it more, which I kind of get because it's it, it can bring people down. But I think the more that it's talked about, the more that it's brought up in conversation. And I'm not saying that people have to start talking about like, hey, if I, you know, if I go out, this is the way I want to go out. But just talking about things about like planning and saying things that should be said when you're alive and not when you're, you know, deceased or, you know, knowing that, you know, you did everything you could do while you were alive for the people around you that you love or the job that you have and, and had the ability to do that while you're alive. But I think that's something that, you know, as a society, we just don't talk about. Yeah, you know, I'm probably, I mean, I have some very, very close, intimate friends, and and I'm blessed to have those friends. And, you know, a supportive, long-term, loving, marital relationship, and a great family. And, you know, I mean, my friends and I, we don't make much small talk. <laughs> we can, we, you know, we talk about real stuff, you know, stuff we're working on ourselves. Try, I mean, I'm trying to be every day a better woman than I was the day before. And, you know, we, I mean, those are the things that we, we tend to talk about, Yeah. you know, I mean, we're, you know, we're all readers, we, you know, we watch the news and I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Although I have gotten a little more into sports since I haven't been able to be out as much. So I'm become a little bit of a football fan, but, um, you know, I just think life's too short to pretend like nothing's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say to somebody, you know, one of my friends, you know, how are you doing? They'll say, okay. I'll say really okay. Or the, okay. You tell everybody, well, Probably eight times out of 10, the person will say, you know, I'm not really okay. Yeah. I've got this and this and this. It's all bugging me. But to people that um, I'm not close to, I say, you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. You know, I don't go into any long medical. I mean, I just say I'm great. And that's really what they want to hear yeah. is that you're fine. The people that you're not intimate with, you know, they don't want to get into that. They don't want to think about their own mortality. They want you to be fine. Yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. I got a couple questions here left for you. Okay. And these are a little bit loaded. <laughs> but so there's no right or wrong. It's just a matter of what's really worked for you or how you define it. Um, your answers. What's the best thing either a friend or family member has done for you during this journey? Well, I have two. Can I give two? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I was at a granddaughter's uh, high school graduation and um, this was an important thing. This is a granddaughter who had cystic fibrosis. She ended up having a double lung transplant. Anyway, her high school graduation was big and it was in Huntington beach. And, um, I realized that I, I had done a lot of running around that day. This was, she'll be 20. Um, so this was 
much earlier on. And I was sitting in the bleachers realizing I overdid it. And I felt like I was going to throw up. And I said to my daughter, I think I'm not feeling good. And once blue marches, I'm going to go out of the bleachers and lay down on the grass out front. Why don't you just come get me? And she said, okay. So I did that. And, um, she came and got me. And so we went back to, there's a little party at her house and I just felt really bad. And I said, you know, I've got to go lay down. So I went and got in blues bed and drank a lot of water and laid down for probably two hours. And, um, I got up and I said, you know, I have to go and I think I'm okay to drive home. And so, you know, everybody's like, are you sure? And I said, yeah, it's like 20 minutes on coast highway. You know, it's no big thing. I'll be fine. Yeah. Well, what I didn't realize is that I, as I was stuck in traffic on Coast Highway at a spot where you can't turn around or make a left or get out of it, the traffic just stopped. And, um, you know, it was a Saturday night. And I can see all these red lights flashing. I kind of thought, oh, maybe it's a DUI checkpoint because there's a lot of graduations coming around. Yeah. Well, then I started getting sicker and sicker, and there wasn't even a shoulder to pull over on, and I didn't even have time to put my window down, so I ended up barfing all over myself in my car, which was not pleasant. And when I finally got – so I rolled down all the windows. When I finally got far enough ahead, I saw they were turning everybody back. They'd closed Coast Highway, but there was sort of no warning of that. So I had to take a bunch of side streets, and I've got barf on me and barf all over the car. And you know, it took me about an hour and a half to get home. And I texted my daughter and said, "Anybody who's coming north, tell them not to take Coast Highway because it's closed." And I just threw up all over myself in my car. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, "Well." Um, and, and I had a CAT scan the next morning. I had to be at the medical center at 6.30 in the morning. And I was so sick when I got home. So, yeah, I talked to her and she said, well, okay, you know, I'll fix your – I said, no, I'll just sweep it out in the morning and go. Well, when I got – I went to bed and when I woke up in the morning, um, my car had been cleaned, detailed, had – you know, little sweet smelling things all around it. I mean, it's probably the cleanest it's ever been. Um, and one of the kid, my daughter and a couple of the grandkids had come in the night and cleaned that all oh. up. So that was very touching. And the, the second thing is a friend of mine, Cynthia, who lives in Seattle. She's an artist. And we have one of my dearest friends was hired by the New York Times and has been working in New York for about the last 18 months and I haven't really had the money to go see her um she's been out here you know several times and Cynthia called me up one day and she said I'm gifting you um a trip to New York and Uh you're going to be in first class and you'll have my private driver will take you to the airport. <sighs> Another private driver will pick you up from the airport <laughs> and take you to Kim's house. Um, and that's what she did for me. She set this whole trip up, took care of all the details, had drivers at the ready. And that was in November. 
So I got to spend a week in New York with one of my best friends and go to plays and movies and all the great restaurants and see every i'd been to new york i hadn't been in 50 years oh wow but um lots it, changed <laughs> yeah still big yeah but so that was that was just amazing to me that someone would do that just incredible it's pretty special two stories yeah that i think you really hit home i mean you know naturally a family but and the reason why i asked the question I said, naturally, family, you know, will do anything, you know, for us typically, right? But the reason why I ask the question is because I think so many times people don't know what to do for someone who's fighting or, you know, in, in this journey. And just the littlest things can make such a difference in someone's day. You know, we've had, we, we live on 14th street in seal beach and our block, the 100 block has the ocean at one end, which I'm closest to. And then a green belt at the other end, which I fought to the city wanted it to be condos 40 years ago. So I was fighting that fight, but a beautiful green belt. Well, our, our neighborhood every Friday night, like Memorial day through labor day has a happy hour. And we rotate the houses, and we usually have it like in the front yard or, or um, you know, somebody's patio, whatever. But everyone on the street comes, so we we all know each other really well. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know what their cars are, who their kids are, what their you know. I know where the plumber lives. I know where the retired pulmonologist lives. It's like. We all just have formed this bond. And from the day I got home to the hospital, I would say the first three months, we didn't have to cook a meal. There was somebody at our door every day. with, And they're still doing it two and a half years later. I opened the door the other day, and there's one of my neighbors. And he goes, I know you just went through that surgery here. I made this, you know, mm. chicken pasta dish I thought you guys would like for dinner. I mean, it's just amazing. People were bringing Costco chickens and heads of romaine lettuce and offering to make it chicken salad. Well, I mean, just unbelievable parade of from all walks of life. I mean, not just the neighbors, but from different the church from different organizations we're in and they didn't really coordinate with each other, but a phenomenal amount of um, help was given to me probably more than I deserve. It's pretty special. So the people in my neighborhood know what to do. And I found was that when I was in the hospital for such a long time that the people who know what to do when you're in the hospital are the people who've been in the hospital a long time. So they know you need your hair washed or combed and, you know, that they know what you kind of really need that the hospital may not be providing or doing in the way you want. So that was a blessing, too, because I had a lot of help there. It's powerful stuff for our audience listening at home. And, you know, I, I think everyone's journey is different, how they fight the disease and what resources they have. But the things that you just mentioned, uh, you know, can anyone can do, you know, and, and I think, right. you know, it's something that's so powerful and, and hopefully our audience takes to heart. 
Last... It's so easy to say, let me know if you need something. Correct. But these people just showed up. And, well... and that's if you have somebody. And I know a lot of people don't know what to do. Um, you know, I understand that. I didn't know what to do either before, you know, I knew people that had a serious illness. So, you know, but bringing food is just a, an easy thing that anybody can do. And I think is always appreciated. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. Last question for you. And again, this is a, this is a hard one loaded, but there's no right or wrong. What's your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Um, you know, I, I kind of think of it like I have a mean, annoyed pancreas. Um, I still have most of my pancreas. They cut off the top when they took the tumor. But um, I just kind of think of it as a part of my body that's unhappy and try to do what I can do to make it happy. It doesn't, I mean, I don't think instantly death or, you know, I mean, I know when the oncologist was in the hospital talking to me and telling me, you know, how bad the statistics are, um, I, you know, it, I, I, I guess that's, I, you know, I can't really, other than the fact that there's just sort of this part of my body that's not totally happy, I don't, I don't really have a definition for it. You answered it perfectly. You know, there's no right or wrong to it, Dixie. And I I think everyone's definition is how they define it for how they're experiencing the disease. And as I've said on the podcast, and I said it earlier, I mean, everyone, everyone deals with pancreatic cancer differently, symptoms, treatments. So I think the definition is your definition and it's the right definition. Well, it's, you know, is it Abraham Lincoln who said folks are about as happy as they make up their mind to be? (laughs) I mean, I decided early on, why would I be depressed? You know, if I have this bad disease and I'm going to have to go through some hard medical stuff, I may as well be happy. May as well have fun doing it. So like one day I had a CAT scan on Halloween and I wore a costume to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. I love it. So I'm. You know, my oncologist and I goof around and the nurses and, you know, we try to make it fun. Life's too short not to. That's right. You know, as we, as we talked about. So Dixie, I want to thank you for being a guest and sharing your journey with us here on the Project Purple podcast. I've been taking notes here this whole time and something that you said that I have here in air quotes is your big adventure. So I appreciate you with your honesty and sharing your big adventure uh, with pancreatic cancer with our audience. And as I said, everyone's journey is different. And this is the power of this podcast is hopefully someone on the other side listening might go through what you just went through over the last couple years. And this would be helpful in their journey. The last thing before I let you go, if someone does hear something on this podcast and they want to connect with you, 
I know I found you on Instagram. What's the best way if someone wants to reach out to you and talk to you further about what you've gone through, or maybe they live in the area and, and found what you had to say inspiring and would like to connect? What's the best way for someone to reach out to you? Well, if they're on Facebook and they do Messenger, you know, that's, that's um, an easy way. So Dixie Redfern, uh, R-E-D-F-E-A-R-N. Perfect. Um, and I mean, my my cell phone number's on my Facebook and Instagram profile, I think. So, I, you know, I'm easy to find, and I don't mind answering people's questions. If someone contacts you and asks for my phone, my phone number, you can give it to them. I'm not the most private person. I figure my, my stuff's all out there anyway. So you're on Google. There's plenty of stuff on Google. I did a Google check. Yeah. There's a couple things on there. Yeah. I I did some research. I haven't Googled myself. Well, your LinkedIn profile is up there. And, uh, I think you had a Twitter page that hasn't been worked on in a couple of years. If that's you, it looks like you. And, uh, you know, I, I think social media, as I've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, is a great resource when it's used in the right way to connect with people. So clearly Instagram or Facebook, Dixie Redfern uh, is a great way to connect with you. Dixie, thank you for, again, being on the Project Purple podcast. And as we say here, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.